<clears throat> so what I'd like to talk about um, tonight is a subject that often perplexes uh, the beginning yogi, the middle yogi, and the very experienced yogi. Uh, but I don't, uh, I personally don't find it particularly confusing. Um, and what I'd like to do is talk about not-self uh, and uh, attempt to uh, anchor it, ground it in um, kind of a practical framework. Experiential framework, something that hopefully is accessible to us. And um, in the process, I'm sure I'll oversimplify it, um, but I also think um, uh, this particular aspect of the teaching uh, is nothing to be frightened by. And I think that oftentimes uh, folks will come into an interview or talk to us at the center or on retreat, and, you know, what's this thing about not-self, you know, what's, and uh, oftentimes it's asked in kind of an agitated way. I just don't get it. Everything else seems to make sense, but this doesn't. And I think it's because it's a easily misunderstood uh, concept. I think it's a very difficult, I, I think it's a very difficult and deep teaching and that, that the teaching of not-self or the understanding of not-self has so many different layers to it. But let's just um, look at it from a practical point of view. And when we're, of course, when we're talking about not-self, um, for many of us, that may sound like a, it's a concept. And fortunately, in the practice of insight meditation, we don't have to buy into concepts in that sense. We don't have to um, believe that there's not a self. Uh, We don't have to believe there's a self. I mean, we don't have, in other words, in order to practice, we don't have to buy into that particular aspect of the teaching. Uh, The Buddha, of course, encouraged a direct investigation, which is what what he did himself, basically. He discovered, he made a discovery for himself that there wasn't a self. But that was through his own direct investigation. And of course, that's what we're all doing here on this retreat. So it's not a, not a matter of me convincing you of a not-self or the Buddha, better yet, convincing you of not-self. Or, um, and I'm not particularly invested in you believing or buying into it either. Um, but it, it, it's a, an important aspect of the teaching. And, and in, in the process of exploring it and understanding it, uh, there's tremendous potential for liberation. And I also think that the understanding of not-self occurs just naturally. Um, As we begin to pay attention and as we begin to take a look at our experience in a sustained way, we begin to see the changing nature of our experience. And and every time one experiences the changing nature of a sensation in the body, every time one notices pain or experiencing something pleasant while you're eating, and noticing that it comes and goes, or noticing that you uh, had a particular perception of someone, and then you realize it, like in daily life, this happens a lot. We have a perception of someone, we make a conclusion based on that perception, and then we find out it wasn't true. So in that particular moment of seeing that it wasn't true, uh, that all of these are actually insights 
into not-self. You know, we're, those are insights into not-self, even though we might not have that particular framework. We might not see it that way. Um, but that is actually, that's beginning to loosen uh, up that particular concept of a solid self. You know, something that's outside of nature. You know, something that has a permanence to it. Uh, something that's fixed, F-I-X-E-D, fixed in, in a stable, solid entity. And why I don't find it particularly perplexing um, is because it makes so much sense to me. And self doesn't make a lot of sense. Self in terms of, I mean, there are a lot of different frameworks and models of self, but when we refer to self, what we're talking about is the, the belief, the belief, the investment in a solid, unchanging self. Okay. So to me, that doesn't make any sense. Because to believe that there's a solid, fixed self that's directing the show, you know, with all these experiences that are coming and going, it doesn't make sense to me because what it would imply is that you and me and everyone on this planet, uh, that we human beings are separate from nature. That somehow, you know, we look at this, we look at the days unfold, we look at, you know, the world's constantly changing. And somehow we have a belief that there's this person back there that's directing the show. And it's a person that follows us through our life until we die. And of course, what the Buddha discovered when he paid attention was, is that that's a concept, that's an idea that we're um, attached to. And it comes out of uh, not seeing clearly our nature. Now, I know that, um, as I said, I do think I've, I've talked to enough people to know that sometimes this concept of not-self, this teaching, can be threatening. Partly because we don't understand it, maybe. But also, I think there's a tendency we humans have to uh, maybe find some comfort you know, in a world that's changing, um, that there's somebody that can control things, you know, that somebody back there calling the shots on our actions and our thoughts and our behavior. But unfortunately, it has a kind of the opposite effect of providing any kind of um, reliable security. Because what, what it does, and this, this may be something just to investigate or explore or reflect on, um, what it does is it actually uh, creates um, fear, generates fear, creates a sense of separation separation from each other, separation from uh, this planet, not recognizing our interconnections. Uh, We have to, of course, protect and defend the self. You know, we're constantly in battle, trying to do that, to hold on to that idea. And that's, of course, because we're out of harmony. You know, we're out of harmony with nature. We can't recognize the fact that we're, we're a part of nature, that, that we're not unlike, there's, there's commonality in living beings. You know, we, we share more than we recognize. And because we create a self, we create 
or construct a self, um, we create all sorts of problems, actually endless problems. In fact, what the Buddha said is that's the source of our suffering, is this um, attachment or clinging to self. Because if we create a self, of course, we create another. It's unmistakable. Can't create a self without creating another. Because you're creating a separate entity. So what the Buddha discovered through investigation, through sustained silent observation, exactly the practice that we're doing, is that we tend to construct a self, we create a self, by identifying with changing experiences, by claiming that, but by claiming uh, changing experiences as me or mine. That's what we mean by identifying with something. We're claiming it as me or my. And he, quite brilliant, uh, quite insightful, he came up with kind of five uh, advocates of clinging categories. And one was, first one's the body, the second is feelings. When we talk about feelings, we're talking about pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings, not necessarily emotions. Perception, you know, labeling things, recognizing them, memory, perception. Mental formations, which are thoughts, emotions, moods, reactions. And consciousness, which is the knowing faculty, you know, the observing faculty, the knowing faculty. So what he discovered is all five of these aspects makes up who we are, our experience. Uh, they're always changing. They're not stable. But we cling to them. We claim them as mere mind. And so there is this sense of self. So let's take them up. Let's take each one of them up and take a look at maybe how we identify with them. And, and I hope you can recognize some ways that we do identify with them, but also how they cause, cause us trouble, how they create discontent, or how they create fear, or how they knock us out of balance or overwhelm us, or just create trouble in general for us. So looking at the body, uh, you know, it's, it's an undeniable uh, that any conscious being, anybody who's been paying attention, realizes that the body is changing. You know, it's changing. You might not see that it's changing from moment to moment, but actually when you begin to meditate, you can see that. See that the breath is changing moment to moment. Body sensations are coming and going. Sometimes it hurts, sometimes it doesn't. It's rising, falling. Touch points change. So that moment to moment awareness is often, um, you know, it's, it's not noticed by folks who are just kind of living their life and maybe perhaps in an unconscious way. But even those folks know that the body is aging. You, know, you have to be in absolute, complete, 100% denial, uh, which some of us are some of the time. I mean, I'm still waiting for 30 to come. So yeah, you have to be in total denial not to recognize that the body ages which isn't a bad thing, is it? (laughs) Sure, a lot of us think it is a bad thing. 
And that, of course, is because we're identified with the body. You know, when we see the seasons change, except when it changes into winter, we don't think of it as bad. You know, we think of it as, it's natural. We expect it. Around here, you know, the seasons unfold. Uh, and each season actually changes. And winter's different every year, but seasons are changing. And even that's the concept of season. You know, it, there's dates in a calendar that tells us when summer is, but the reality is it's pretty, it's pretty fluid, unpredictable. It's really not in our control. So nobody has a problem with that. But when we take a look at our bodies, because we're so identified with them, we live in a great deal of fear. You know, we're in fear of the uncontrolled nature of the body. Maybe we diligently try to take care of it. You know, we encourage you to do yoga and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and it's a very good thing to do, to take care of the body. But it's changing. There's no inherent self in the body. It's not outside of nature. You, you don't get, you can claim it, but you don't get it. You know, you don't, you don't own it. You don't, one doesn't call the shots on one's body. So we can see different ways that we create trouble for ourselves, just like in terms of aging and resisting it. And I don't know how many books I've seen, you know, New York Times bestseller, Amazon, you know, prevent aging. Prevent aging. Come on. <laughs> Somehow this is like a bestseller. Please, please. You know, maybe aging well, I could see that. That means a lot of different things, right? Mostly I think it has to do with your mind. But, uh, you know, prevent. What happens when we get sick? You know, I've watched this in my own mind. You know, we get ill. Sometimes seriously, sometimes colds, flus, things like that. Well, a lot of times we criticize ourselves. I remember I once was working with a yogi. Still see him. And um, somebody like basically in his mid-40s, late-40s, and he uh, developed prostate cancer. And I worked with him during this process, up leading up to the operation and then afterwards. um, And really the whole time that he was, you know, working his way up, trying to, you know, figure out how he was going to deal with it, all of that. He kept talking about, he kept blaming himself. It's fascinating. He kept feeling responsible. Like he should have had a better diet. He should have done this. He should have done that. And you could see that there was a lot of suffering. There's, you know, there's suffering in having to deal with that issue, right? And all the stuff that that brings up. But gee, you know, to, to really start condemning himself. Uh, for that, um, we can see, you know, that there's a, a resistance and there's an identification and there's a feeling responsible for that uh, when it really is following laws, you know. I mean, who knows uh, what conditions came together to, for him to, to experience that or to be subject to prostate cancer, you know, who knows? Multiple conditions probably. And then really the fear of death, you know, so much of that. I mean, that's a really profound de- uh, fear. And of course, really at the bottom of it is this identification. 
with the body. You know, fear of the unknown, fear of the cha- changing nature, the uncontrolled nature of the body. Now, when we talk about non-identification with the body or loosening the hold of that claiming is me and mine, you know, we're not talking about... Sometimes I think folks think, well, not-self... Um, it means that you're indifferent. Uh, sometimes folks think not-self means there's no boundaries, there's no interpersonal boundaries, there's uh, no sense in aspiring, you know, for... Um, satisfaction or aspiring for um, things that we want for ourselves, you know, that somehow it's going to um, interfere um, with our heart, with what we hope uh, to get out of life. But it's not about developing indifference. In relationship to the body, no. The body's an amazing vehicle. I mean, it's why we're here today. I mean, it sustains us. allows us to practice. It allows us to be in relationship. It allows us to explore this planet, to appreciate each other. So it serves us. It's full of challenges often. So it's not about not taking care of yourself, but not indifference. It doesn't lead that way at all. Second is feelings. Feelings are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In other words, in any sensation that you have, any experience you have, has a feeling quality to it, a taste, a flavor. So, for instance, uh, oh, uh, let's see. Let's look at a mental state. Mental states have pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings. Okay, so say you're sitting in meditation and you're feeling really pretty damn good, finally. Uh, you know, like you're finally, you know, you're like with the breath or you're starting to feel calm and steady and, and, you know, pretty good. You kind of think you're getting a handle on it finally. It's only taken four days. It feels like four months, but but still, you know, you're getting there. Uh, And there's this pleasant feeling that arises, you know, a pleasant mental feeling of peace or samadhi or calm. And then the then it comes up, boy, I'm, a, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> I'm a good meditator, right? I got it. At least I'm getting it. Um, and so we put a self in that, right? There's this state of mind, but then there's an identification with it. There's a claiming of it. You know, you worked hard. It's my calm. It's my peace. <laughs> and then the bell rings. You get up, you walk for a while, you get distracted, have a cup of tea. You come back start getting really restless and agitated. You want to get that feeling back, you know, and it's not coming back. And it's really starting to drive you crazy. (laughs) And now you're a bad meditator, right? There's that identification with that state of mind now. You've lost it. You know, you've failed. Or you're you're never going to get it. All that self-doubt, some of that self-doubt starts kicking in. So what that's pointing to, or, you know, pain in the body, you know, how often, you know, I mean, pain in the body is pain in the body, right? But there's often a lot of self-judgment about that. Talk to folks about that all the time. 
People think they did something wrong or that there's something wrong with them or that they can't meditate because there's pain in the body, which is definitely not true. Absolutely 100% not true. If you're waiting for a pain-free body in order to meditate, uh, you're going to be in for a long wait, is my guess. Um, And if your body doesn't feel any discomfort, I'm very happy for you. Um, But just keep paying attention. Just keep paying attention. Okay. So pain is not bad, you know. We're not bad people because our bodies are not behaving or that we're experiencing unpleasant mental states. You know, we're not any of those things. They're just conditions arising and passing away. Different states of mind, different uh, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. My God, if you could count how many pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings you've had today, there would be thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of them. There would be. There would be. There would be that many and more. Because we're always experiencing pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. We don't notice them all. But they're rapidly changing. But we hook on. You know, we cling. We identify. We place value judgments. You know, when the mind is not behaving, it's it's not good. When the mind is behaving, it's good. But really, neither one is something that we have absolute control over. So feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, very much part of life, just the fabric of life. How we relate to those feelings determine how we suffer. If we, if we invest our happiness in a pleasant feeling, do you think that's going to work? No, absolutely not. If we invest our unhappiness in unpleasant feelings, it's not going to work either. Okay? Because one can experience deep peace in unpleasant experiences, and one can experience deep peace with pleasant experiences. But it doesn't come through clinging or aversion. It doesn't come through identifying with those experiences. Third is perception. Now this is one <sighs> crucial. I mean, it's crucial to begin to investigate the nature of perception and to begin to see the impermanent nature of relationship and the unreliability of it. You know, because for most of us, a lot of the time, we really buy into our perceptions. We take them as true. And we make, we determine, our perceptions, of course, are based on memory, history, culture, accumulated experiences. So when we meet someone and we perceive them, we're seeing it through that ancient history that we have. Often. Now with mindfulness along with us, right? Perception's much freer. It's not so attached by its biases. Okay? Because it's open hearted. It's meeting the experience in the here and now. Perception is history, you know, meeting the present moment. Another yogi I work with, I'm very fond of this particular yogi. He has a bit of a reputation at CIMC for being a very long-winded yogi um, who engages in our Q&A in a very active way. Um, And a good friend of mine and I have permission to talk about this story because he told me and I said, that's too good of a story to let go. Uh, Can I share it? And he said, fine, good. You know, he was kind of proud of it because (laughs) he had an insight at the end of it. So I thought that, that, so it's a happy ending. 
Uh, so I have the freedom to talk about it. Um, one time he was uh, in line at CVS and he was waiting, I guess, to pay for something that he bought at CVS. And some fellow, like maybe early 60s or so, cut right in front of him. Now, if you know George, he wouldn't be happy about that. <laughs> you know, somebody just walking in front of him and positioning himself in front of him. And so George, you know, who's a yogi, takes it on. And, um, you know, he's kind of watching his mind. But then he, he can't help himself but say something. <laughs> so he says, you know, do you realize, you, you know, like in a very, a controlled, aversive way, probably. Uh, you know, you cut in line. And, you know, his first thought when he saw him cut in line was, what a jerk. This guy thinks like he's entitled, arrogant, whatever. You know, that was his immediate perception of this guy. And some of us might have that exact same perception. And so fellow turned around and George saw him in the face and he realized that there was something not quite right. And what the fellow described was that um, he was on medication and he had just had some operation or something and he was very disconnected. And he just kind of saw the line and walked in it. And of course, you know, George realized what he did and what he was carrying and his perception and his aversive reaction. And he, of course, he felt bad about it. But he learned something from that. You know, he came to me and he talked about it. And what he was proud about was is that he saw that um, um, attaching to his perception in that particular point created suffering for him and, you know, potentially created suffering from the other fellow. And we do that all the time. You know, I do that when I'm driving all the time. You know, I, I endlessly talk about my driving habits at CIMC because they're not that good. Uh, but also my mind is not particularly equanimous. It happens to be a significant area of practice for me. Um, and, uh, you know, people misbehave out there. If you're driven around Boston, maybe New York too, uh, you know, people are not doing good things. You know, they're, they're not driving, basically, is probably the problem. They're doing everything else but. Uh, so it's very easy to get annoyed, occasionally frightened, uh, certainly impatient, certainly judgmental. I tend to give people driving instructions. Uh, I've been told that I'm going to come back my next life as a driving instructor. <laughs> And believe me when I tell you, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> I think I'd rather dig ditches, <laughs> which I have done. And of course, those judgments, those quick perceptions, immediately I make a perception of who that person is. And make a solid other immediately. Uh, that being who basically did something that I didn't like. And I have no idea why. You know, like the, the mind thinks, well, they're entitled or they never got driving lessons or whatever the story might be. Uh, but I don't know what the story is behind that particular action. It could be really a profound experience, honestly. It could. Um, 
they might not have used that blinker for a good reason. Um, <laughs> they could be preoccupied with a loved one's death. Could be. Not everybody, but a lot of people could be. There could be good reasons for it, in other words. Reasons that I don't know, and I don't know the reasons. Okay? But, you know, immediately that label, that perception of that person is based, actually it's based literally on a momentary experience. I have an aversive reaction. And there's that label right away. And we do that to each other. We do that to ourselves. You know, we have a perception of ourselves, and man, is that tough to shake. You know, the idea about who we are. It's a perception. We look in that mirror and we perceive ourselves. You know, we think about ourselves in certain ways. We perceive ourselves in some ways, and it, it's out of harmony with what's true. And the problem is it creates so much problem for us. We suffer enormously because our perceptions are based on culture and history and all sorts of stuff um, that's based on ignorance. And, and it blocks the... It, it's um, limiting when we're attached to our perceptions. Profoundly limiting. Limiting in terms of how we relate to ourselves gets in the way. You know, so often in practice until we begin to see that, yes, we need to begin to investigate our relationship to ourselves. And practices like metta or mindfulness, that, that, that begins to facilitate that transformation in relationship or how we perceive ourselves. We begin to see ourselves in a, in a bigger picture. We begin to see ourselves in a much more expansive way, not so narrow, not confined by all these um, ideas um, that we've learned along the way. And so that opens us up to change. You know, we discover resources that we never thought we had. We discover potential that we never thought we had. And in meditation, it's not just bad news. It's not just difficult things that we face from moment to moment. Sometimes it is. But a lot of really wonderful qualities that we would never discover unless we went below the preconceptions that condition our perceptions. Other. The perception of other. The source of all conflict that I can see is based on perception of others. Labeling, bias, preconceptions, all sorts of conditioning, creating a solid other, objectifying. That's what perception tends to do. We objectify ourselves, good, bad, successful, failure. We objectify others too. And it knocks us out of harmony. Creates enormous tension. I get a kick out of uh, some politicians these days. I'm trying to be generous here. Um, The politicians that claim we're special. We Americans. We're special. Like we're chosen. I just hear that stuff and I think you've got to be kidding me. I mean, really, it's, it's a perception. I mean, incredibly narcissistic perception. But you can see just what that does, how that kind of perception, uh, say nationalistic perception, for instance, how much trouble it causes. So we need to begin to question that and investigate it. It's not to deny that perception isn't helpful. We need to be able to recognize how to get to work. We need our memory, all of that. But what 
uh, mindfulness does, what healing does, what awareness does, is it frees us up of our um, taking our perceptions as absolute reality. And so we hold them much lighter. We're much more open. See, when we're attached to our perceptions, we're actually closed. We're, not, we're actually not in touch with present moment when we're attached to any of these things. It knocks us out of the present moment. So, Fourth is mental formations, fourth of the aggregates, uh, mental formation, which is emotions. I spoke about difficult emotions last night, Um, moods, mental states, thoughts, reactions, all of those things fall under uh, mental formations. And and then we can begin to see... um, the trouble we can create for ourselves when we identify with our emotions, for instance. Let's take up a couple of the difficult emotions Ryan spoke about last night. Uh, one is anxiety. Okay, so lots of us have anxiety. I think it's an epidemic, basically. Just like self-doubt, I think, is an epidemic. That's probably a form of anxiety. Uh, so oftentimes, of course, I talk to people about these kinds of things. These are things that are troubling us all of us sometimes. So usually what most people think is it's, I'm an anxious person. I experience a lot of anxiety, I'm an anxious person. It's in the, you can begin to see a bit of a problem. And usually what I say is, no, you're not. And they look at me and they think I'm crazy. Uh, and I say, no, you're not an anxious person. I definitely believe that you experience anxiety. I believe you experience anxiety on a regular basis, but you're more than that. Okay. Don't construct the self out of that experience of anxiety, no matter how predominant it is, no matter how strong it is, no matter how much it troubles you, no matter how much you don't like it, no matter how much it limits you, don't construct the self out of it. See it for what it is. That's the whole idea about practice. That's why you don't have to believe in not-self. Just pay attention and we'll see the changing nature of anxiety. It's a form of energy. There's another reality to it. It's not who we are. Emotions are forms of energy. They manifest in different ways. Body, emotions, thoughts, express themselves in different ways. My depression, I am a depressed person, same thing. No, not really. Might be a predominant experience. It's not who you are. My peace. Yogis get into that sometimes. Like, I'm a peaceful person. Maybe. <laughs> maybe, so, maybe some of the time, huh? Yeah, there's, there can be a lot of identification with uh, peaceful feelings, too. Once in a while I run into a yogi who comes in thinking they were a hotshot. Uh, you know, this happened a couple weeks ago. I think this yogi thought they were enlightened. And, um, you know, they kind of were looking for confirmation. I don't think I was that helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Met him once, and it's probably the last time (laughs) that he'd come to me. um, Because I, anybody who thinks I'm enlightened isn't in my 
perception of things. No one becomes enlightened. Is that disappointing? <laughs> yeah, no. Mm-mm. Can't identify with whatever experience one has, no matter how wonderful, liberating it is. There's nobody that's enlightened. Finally, the fifth, consciousness. Consciousness is the knowing faculty of mind. And this is something that meditators um, you know, don't underestimate the power of awareness. We learn so much about ourselves. And, and one thing that meditators encounter if they're paying attention closely, and actually this is kind of insight that can kind of drive you crazy for a while, but you have to keep going with it, which is um, we become aware of the observer. You know, like we're paying attention and we're observing, but there's also this very um, background voice that's, I am observing the breath, I am observing the walking. I am observing this mental reaction. I am observing pleasant feelings, whatever it might be. So there's this uh, sense that there's somebody observing. Like we might buy into the fact that uh, we're not our thoughts, we're not our body. You know, we know feelings come and go, and now we're you know we know perceptions can be, you know, bias or conditioned, so they're not absolute truth. And we might be really hip to all of that, and we've already we already know it. Um, of course, you can know it at different levels for sure, but. Many of us, I'm sure, already know it. Um, but the knowing faculty, the person who we, the person who we think we are, is often the observer. It's the commentator. It's the person sitting back there, making evaluations, or commenting, or knowing what your experience is. And so the Buddha took a very close look at consciousness. Very direct look at consciousness and realize that that was an idea. You know, that there's an observer. That reality, this was his discovery, there's just observing. There's just knowing. That there's nobody behind the, the observing. There's nobody behind the knowing. And from my perception, it just makes perfect sense. How could there be somebody behind consciousness? How can there be somebody behind the knowing? That's sitting there knowing. It doesn't it really? It's very irrational. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, there's observing. There's knowing, and, and that knowing is colored by so many different things. You know, so many different states of mind color consciousness. Um, it, you know, you can't trust the knowing a lot of the times. You know, the observer, because you can be observing something, but you know, seeing it in a very distor- distorted way. So what the Buddha discovered is we're not, we're not the observing mind either. We're not the knowing faculty of mind.
So when we talk about inner freedom, and that is something that we do talk about in Vipassana, insight meditation, we talk about that as the fruit of practice. You know, all the work that we're doing here. Fruit is inner freedom. And what facilitates that freedom within this particular framework of practice, this particular approach, is a process of waking up, seeing things as they are, seeing things clearly, below the level of preconceptions, seeing things very directly for ourselves, below the level of judgments, not attaching to the body as something solid, feelings, perception, seeing the changing nature of thoughts, emotions, moods, just by paying attention and even paying attention to the observer and we'll see that there's just observing. It's a concept, thought. The freedom is, of course, letting go of this burden, this burden of a self. Because if we can let go of this burden of a self, we open to change, we open to transformation. We can make discoveries. See, when we're attached or identified with these phenomena, It limits our learning process. Insight is a process of learning, of seeing things fresh. So what we're doing, everybody in this room, what we're doing is we're facilitating a learning process. And the learning process means oftentimes letting go of the ideas that we have. Because for most of us, we already understand that we don't understand what leads to peace. And so we're we're learning about that. You know, and, and we have to work at it uh, because the mind is full of delusion. And so the work we're doing is just that. It's learning how to discover for ourselves what leads to peace. That's exactly what the Buddha was interested in. Suffering and liberation from suffering. Seeing and understanding for himself what leads to peace. And that's what's so wonderful about this practice is that we have an opportunity here to continue to facilitate that process of investigation. We discover other aspects of ourselves. I mean, when I think about uh, just what practice, how much practice has facilitated that in my own life, you know, where there's no way I would have experienced myself the way I experience myself now without practice. You know, I would have seen myself in a much, much more narrower framework, one that was much more deeply conditioned by my past experiences. You know, so it's possible you know, to expand out from that place and not be limited by that. The sense of connectedness. You know, when we begin to see through this fixed, limited, solid self, we begin to see its transparent nature, that it's not actuality, it's not reality. Um, what that does is it just opens us up to that sense of connectedness that we're all looking for. You know, that sense of alienation, of separation, of fear, or anxiety comes out of that sense of separation, not recognizing the commonality, not recognizing how we're so interdependent, or that we're all in the same boat in a certain way. Now, we're all subject to difficult conditions and different conditions, for sure. But there's a commonality that does not get recognized. And because it doesn't, it causes a lot of trouble on this planet. 
We have a commonality with the earth, yet we're very alienated from it as a planet, as something that supports our life. You know, we need to um, transform that relationship. You know, we need to recognize that we're more than just a self, scrapping by, you know, just trying to get by, you know, so absorbed in our own thinking. No, we need to see things in a bigger way. And when we talk about compassion, it's not, it's not something that you know, just good people have compassion. Compassion is a natural, innate response to realizing that we are connected, that we're not separate. And as long as we're uh, confined by our attachment to a fixed self, we have that sense of separation. And compassion sounds like a good thing, but a lot of times it's just pity, you know, pity of the other. So, whether that concept is useful to you or not, the not-self, I think the uh, most significant thing, of course, in this practice is to practice. And to practice means to pay attention. And right now we're under conditions, very supportive conditions, to practice in a more sustained way. so it's, it's to kind of begin to question or investigate when you feel stuck or when one feels like one's in a lot of pain or conflict or, or discontent with an experience that's arising. You know, see if you can begin to see any process of identification that might be going on in that. Some, some way that we claim that particular experience, whether it's in the body or in the environment or in our consciousness or in our mental states. Uh, See if you can see that idea or that claiming uh, of me or mine in this particular experience. And then see if if in seeing that we're uh, interposing or we're we're bringing that concept in and questioning it, see if that doesn't open up a little bit more room just to experience it and to take a look at it and to see its changing nature. Okay, so let's uh, sit for a minute or so. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings be safe and protected. And may all beings be free from all forms of suffering. 
So I want to thank you for your attention and, uh, you know, please continue the practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.